Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's Talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. We are not live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Usually that's where we are Monday nights at 9 o'clock Central. Now, last week we told you we were going to take Labor Day off, which was true up to a point. We did not do a live show this week. However... You can't keep a good thing, Dan. You can't keep the OBS boys away from the microphones, and we're releasing a podcast-only show this week with replays of two of our recent favorite segments. Tonight, we are going to listen to the interview with recently retired Chicago Tribune classical music critic John Von Rhein. He talks about a whole host of issues, including how classical music criticism has changed in recent months and years and what he's going to be doing next with his time. And then follow that up with a replay of our Opera World Cup segment, which we did back in July when we took the actual World Cup bracket of the final 16 teams and picked the winners of each round based on their operatic prowess. And... With no Germany in the final 16, with no Italy in the World Cup at all this year, no USA in the World Cup at all this year, the results were surprising. Sit back, relax, and enjoy a highlight best of show for this Labor Day weekend. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Thanks for hanging out with us tonight. Opera Box Score, WNUR 89.3 FM. Early in October of 1977, a 32-year-old former violin student and English major from Southern California had his first review published in the Chicago Tribune as the paper's classical music critic. Forty years and eight months later, John Von Rhein has retired from a post that has afforded him an aisle view of one of the richest, most important cultural arenas in the nation. And he joins us now on Opera Box Score live via phone. Mr. Von Rhein, thank you so much for being on the show. You're very welcome, George. Good to be here. Great to be here with you and with the rest of my boys. I got to ask, did you write those final articles with a tear in your eye? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was a bittersweet uh, column to have to write. I'll tell you, it took me longer than just about any other piece I've written for the Tribune in 40 years. Uh, because there was just so much to crunch, you know, um, you know what to leave out, what to include, and you could only do a, a smattering of reactions. But sure, I'm going to miss it a, a tremendous amount. I tell people I'm sort of in um, 
the decompressing mode right now. I'm um, although I left the Tribune, I'm continuing to do some freelance uh, writing, uh, just a little more selectively, and doing the kinds of pieces that I I want rather than what uh, the editors always want. Absolutely. Uh, this is Matt here. I I'm wondering if Hi, you Matt. Can, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how, uh, as a critic, you developed a vocabulary to talk about music that was uh, descriptive and meaningful. That you know didn't have too much jargon or wasn't what and wasn't so vague, uh, in a way that your reviews did provide insight into the performances that you saw. Well, it sure helped to be a dual major at UCLA as both an English major and a violin and music history major. So. I combined the skills of one discipline with the other. Um, I don't think anybody should be in a position like I had at the Tribune unless they've had some performing experience and some musical um, in-depth background. But it is a writing job, and um, the English major, all the reading I did and the writing, of course, uh, all helped refine my skills. So um, I don't think very few of us actually set out to become music critics. Uh, we, we just kind of fall into it, and I just happened to fall into it at a very lucky time, I think, for arts criticism in general in America, when there were papers and outlets for us to, to write. I'm not sure anybody coming up now in the field is going to find nearly the number of openings and certainly... Uh, the kinds of editors who helped get me my start. Um, it's it's a different ball game altogether now, and we'd need a separate program to go into that. Yeah, yeah, it's a very different world now. I think than when you started. This is Weston, by the way. Um, not to brag, but I have I, I did uh, work for a newspaper for a few months, and I did a little bit of a very tiny bit of classical music criticism, mm -hmm. so a little little different um, than I think when you... Uh, Mr. Von Ryan is unimpressed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Well, uh, um, I mean, I'll, I'll send you some of my articles. My be great. sympathies are out for anybody, <laughs> let's put it that way, who is trying to get a foothold in what is pretty much a shrunken profession right now. Uh, they don't seem to... I mean, I'm, I'm not knocking my bosses they're they're keeping up the scrutiny on the chicago art scene and god bless them for that but other newspapers and other outlets just don't seem to want classical music as part of the mix like it was assumed classical music was when i started in 77 and uh, now bean counters are running the show and uh, you mm. and i know that classical music doesn't get the digital clicks that sports and tv and movies do and but it never did. It's just now that everything seems to be measured by that, and um, I don't think that's right. There's a very demanding, discerning um, reading public out there that wants to hear about what's going on, and they want informed opinion about what's going on. On that note, uh, how much do you think it's the uh, the the critic's role to? inform and educate and promote the artistic endeavors of the city rather than, you know, just pure criticism. Uh, how do you uh, kind of strike that balance between those objectives? Um, well, I tried to do that very um, conscientiously in, over these years. Um, it, it wasn't always ideal. I'll be very honest with you. In the old days, uh, when I started out, when the newspapers could afford to main, maintain full staffs of arts writers and critics, there were clear lines of demarcation between those who wrote the advance 
for a given arts event and those who actually reviewed that event. Well, now staffs have have shrunk, and the the distinction has blurred, I think, between quote-unquote promotion and reviewing. Mm. And more than a few times, i got to say, I found myself duty-bound as an honest critic to knock a performance or an opera production that I had um, advanced a couple of days before. I don't think uh, that's an ideal situation, um, that we are forced to do both, and I'd like to think that I was able to maintain that distinction. But um, it's 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 not easy. I mean, what can I say? There's there's such a thing as a kind of civic-minded arts writer, and I think um, all of us at the Tribune were that. But then we had to kind of put on another hat when it came to reviewing because people wanted an honest assessment of what went on. I mean, a case in point was I sat down in the roundtable discussion of the new Faust production at Zurich, mm -hmm. the Kevin Newberry production, mm -hmm. which it turns out I pretty much hated uh, when I actually saw it, despite all the background that I got and all that. I had to be honest, and I had to knock it. Um, because right. I didn't think I was doing anybody a, a service by, you know, saying sweet nothings about a show that failed to measure up to the artwork itself. I mean, th obviously, this is gonna, uh, going to continue to be a difficult question over the next several sure. years and probably decades. But uh, I feel like hopefully, anyway. I, I feel like a lot of people uh, really kind of look at this and they just have this sort of pessimistic viewpoint. Do you do you have any? Um, uh, glimmers of hope, any insights that you might offer to those sort of following in your footsteps? Well, that's, that's an excellent question. I've, I think as um, criticism has proliferated more and more on the Internet and in blogs and in outlets that I hope in my retirement to pursue a little bit more, I hope that, that when, now that that is proliferating so well, that there is room for all kinds of writing, whether it's advances, whether it's interviews, whether it's news stories, obituaries, and, of course, solid, informed criticism. So um, I look to the Internet as, as a possible means of salvation there, for want of a better term. I don't know print will even be around when it comes to serious arts criticism much longer. Some editors at major newspapers have already given up on print and have concentrated all their resources on digital. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're talking with recently retired Chicago Tribune classical music critic John Von Rhein. Mr. Von Rhein, in the uh, pair of farewell articles that you wrote for the Tribune, which are linked mm -hmm. on our website, operaboxscore.com, you wrote, I have qualms about impending cutbacks in the number of Lyric Opera of Chicago performances and next season's ratio of war horses to more unusual fare. Mm -hmm. Can you can you say more about what those qualms were, and, and how, what do you see the direction of that company over the next years? Well, I, I don't want this to become a trend. I mean, next season they're cutting back by four performances from sixty-one, I believe, to fifty-seven. Um, Siegfried, which is the most difficult sell of the Wagner Ring operas, 
will have only four performances. And um, so I, I just don't want this to become a kind of template for future seasons. Um, um, what else did you want to know? Sorry. Well, and so... Um we have these impending cutbacks. Yeah. That's in the context of uh, the history of Lyric, when you look even further back to uh, artist Kranick rescuing the company from bankruptcy mm-hmm. and setting up some fiscal responsibility under Bill Mason and now um, Anthony Freud. Well, fiscal responsibility is becoming ever more a mantra, not just at Lyric, but uh, CSO and uh, everywhere else uh, with the big money institutions. Um, I want Lyric, obviously, to be number one, an international um, pace setter for, um, for opera, um, not just in America, but around the world. I want us to attract the best directors, designers, uh, conductors, singers. Um, I think Anthony Freud is doing a good job in some areas, maybe could be improved in others, namely some of the stage directors that he has brought in over these last several years um, have not panned out terribly successfully. He's, I, we know what he's doing because the Met is doing much the same same thing. They're looking toward the realms of legitimate theater and Broadway for new directorial ideas. Well, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. It depends a lot on how well-versed in the score the directors are. And uh, we've had a couple of productions that I've found fault with. Uh, the Singing and Dancing Carmen was one um, unspeakably <laughs> ugly Tosca. <laughs> Uh, was another um, that same John Caird who gave us that ugly Tosca also did a Parzival, which I thought failed to come to grips with the work. So, okay, I'm I'm all for enlarging the roster, and I think we've done a very good job when it comes to conductors. Um, we're missing out on some major singers that mm-hmm. the Met gets regularly, like Anna Netrebko, like Jonas Kaufmann. Uh, Nutrupko will be back here next year, but not in staged opera, but in a concert with orchestra. So those are kind of scattered shots, but you see what I'm getting at. Um, Anthony, I think, is doing overall a good job. He's casting more what I would call ensemble opera rather than star opera. And some ensemble casts look extremely good. Look at the Aria Dante of Handel that they have next season. Um, that's got uh, quite a lineup. So uh, we'll see. But but you, you mentioned artist Kranich, and there was artistic vision that I would hope that would be emulated into Lyric's future. I mean, look at the Toward the 21st Century initiative that brought us major European 20th century and American operas. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, Kranich had a marvelous gift for keeping one eye on the budget, uh, rigorously on the budget, while keeping the other on a very enlightened artistic uh, agenda. And I could only want that for any company, let alone uh, just Lyric Opera. Absolutely. Mr. Ron Ryan, this is Tobias Wright. So 
kind of want to change the topic here a little bit and hear just a little bit of some of your experiences. Um, and regarding some of the smaller companies uh, and ensembles in the city that don't have the stature, clout, or identity of the Symphony Orchestra, Lyric, uh, Chicago mm -hmm. Opera Theater, or Ravinia, I'm curious, were there ever nights that you reluctantly entered a theater, unsure of or uninspired by the evening ahead of you, uh, and then you found yourself completely engaged and moved by a performance of some of the smaller companies, perhaps even to the point where you were um, forgetful of the fact that you were there as a critic and as a journalist? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty hard to turn off uh, the latter two functions. He is a consummate I would, professional. I wouldn't say reluctantly. I always go into the smaller, what, quote-unquote, off-loop um, operatic experiences very eagerly because I... Oh, number one, I, I want to, I want to bring to, I wanted to bring to the Tribune readers' attention uh, the wealth of uh, activity that's been growing, uh, particularly over the last decade or so. And um, George's company, I will say, it was is one of them that has made my job uh, quite a pleasure, um, bringing us repertoire of, of a smaller nature, of a chamber nature that we need to hear, that certainly complements what the big boys are doing, mm -hmm. uh, and while giving younger singers a promise of that kind of springboard that they need for their careers, that they're not going to get any other way. So, yeah, I've been, I've gone in eager, and I've come out even more eager, I, <laughs> I would say, um, with some. It doesn't mean that everything has worked out fine. I mean, budget considerations and all that, of course, uh, have a, a role to play, like, like w with everybody. But um, the it's it's the alternative spirit and um, new staging ideas, um, new presentation ideas in terms of design that um, I looked for and I was very pleased when I found. Mr. Van Ryn, when you look at the Chicago classical music audience as a whole and if you had to generalize grossly i mean what do they get right what did they miss and how do you want to see this audience here in chicago develop over the coming years well i think chicago classical music audiences uh, have become more sophisticated more discerning in their tastes less balkanized maybe and <laughs> they're and by that i simply mean that people seem to be more willing to explore a greater diversity of performance options in classical than they once were when I came here, when they were the, the audiences were pretty stratified, let me tell you. Um, for sure, this has had a lot to do with the simple fact that there's more of every type of classical music in the area than there was 40 years ago. More symphonic music and opera, chamber music, choral music, early music, new music. Uh, what I do worry about is whether the existing audiences and support mechanisms can sustain this much musical activity, let alone um, adjust to further growth going down the line, given the uncertainties of the arts economy and all that. But I don't think the audiences are missing anything. They've been very sharp. I, I know that from the tenor and content of the emails and letters and phone calls that I've gotten over the years. What I do think is, is sorely lacking is, is the, um, the backing of our elected officials, mm. our, our city, local, 
state government and federal government, particularly, uh, commitment to culture. Um, and in your article, you have this sentence which says, quote, the best advocacy for the arts is to treat the arts as central to a city's identity, not as bread and circuses. What exactly did you mean by that, by bread and circuses? Well, then, then by bread and circuses, uh, simply the arts are not just entertainment. Yes, they can be entertaining, but they're part of a broad cultural fabric that is part of who we are as a civilized society. Um, that's what the politicians don't seem to get. That's what a certain major political party never seems to get every time, uh, particularly after a major presidential election, it votes to cut off funding altogether for the National Endowment for the Arts and Humanities. Now, when you realize that the budget for those federal agencies is infinitesimal mm -hmm. compared to what the billions that would be required to build the, the wall in the southwest border of the U.S., <laughs> for example. I mean, it, we shouldn't be even having this kind of uh, national discussion. Um, fortunately, cooler heads prevail, and they realize that um, without the priming of the pump that the National Endowment provides, um, local activity is, is going to suffer and local art support is going to suffer. Uh, because they look to the national agency, obviously, for that. So um, a roundabout answer to your question, but I don't think the onus should be on audiences. They're fine. Um, I'm I'm worried about support, and, and particularly political support of the arts. It's, it's phenomenal to me that a generation of classical music criticism here in Chicago really has been defined by your writing and and by your words. John Von Rhein was the classical music critic for over 40 years at the Chicago Tribune. He's retired from the paper, but he's still an active critic. And Mr. Von Rhein, I mean that as a compliment, of course. Thank you so much for being on our show this evening. Well, thank you very much for having me, George. It's been a pleasure. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. That is what is in your ear holes right now, Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. It's America's talk radio show about opera. Number in the studio, 847-866-9687. Time to get down to brass tacks, gentlemen. Those gentlemen, by the way, would be myself, George Cedarquist, with Tobias Wright. I'm still here. Matt Cummings. I'm getting pumped. Weston Williams. Woo! -woo! 
So what I did is I took the round of 16 bracket from this edition of the World Cup, Six, the 16 remaining teams, and I took the actual pairings that we have, and I said, well, what if we were to pick a winner in all these matchups purely based on opera metrics? So the composers from uh, that country or the singers or the opera houses or the directors, could we pick a winner? And that's what we're going to do tonight. My boys have uh, done the research. They've got their their countries all ready to go. I've never been more nervous. For no to be. Did you know there was going to be a test? There's, there will be no test. Well, we are. I felt like I was preparing for a test, though, with we're, the research I was doing. This is good. Makes I brought a textbook a with bit. me today. Nice job. Nice from, job. From that master's degree that I purchased. All right. So the first round, here we go. It's... Uh, the Giants of Uruguay. Let's go. That's Toby's team, represented uh, or uh, facing off against Portugal, represented by Matt. Everyone's right. favorite Iberian country. Matt, take that, Spain. Take it away. <laughs> <laughs> take it away, Matt. What's what's your point about why Portugal should go on to the next round? So. Portugal maybe does not have the most prominent place in European opera history, but what they do have, smack dab in the middle of Lisbon, is the Teatro São Carlos, I think is how you say that in Portuguese. It's something like that. Uh, it's a beautiful Rococo theater, really elaborate, and they do crazy productions there. They recently did up a ring cycle by Graham Vick, where the audience was sitting on the stage and they built a platform over the seats and the the actors used that and were climbing up into the boxes and stuff like that it's a pretty strong start tobias uruguay what you got well (laughs) let's talk about the operatic history in uruguay and portugal are the winners (laughs) (laughs) all right over to the other side of the bracket (laughs) Uh, Weston Williams, you drew Russia. Hey, wait, can we? Can I chime in really quick? Sure. That's accurate. <laughs> I mean, like, seriously. And it and actually is kind of sad to learn about the, the lack of operatic history in Uruguay. Although, well, okay, cool. Portugal wins. Well, uh, but over South America in general, I think we're going to see as we work through this bracket that, that there are... It's a little more concentrated. There's some That's pockets true. of really It's active. concentrated. Yeah, yeah I'm not yeah. going to say it's not there, but it's definitely concentrated. So Weston's Russians <laughs> facing off against Matt's Spaniards. Weston, you're going to go first. Okay, well, we got a, a, a few things going for us over in uh, Russia. Uh, first How of all... How many did you cheat on? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to start with uh, the singers, I think. Uh, there are lots of big names. We've got people like Dmitry Forostovsky, Anna Netrebko, Fyodor Chapilan, uh, Olga Borodina, Etc. Etc. The list goes on and on. Uh, you even even outside of specific performers, you have the uh, specific Russian sounds. The the Russian bass, for example, the Russian tenor, uh, have these these distinct categories which are very prevalent even in the West outside of Russia. And it's not an exaggeration to say that in Russia there are so many opera performances going on that there are plenty of greats that have never even had to sing in the West. Got it. So Weston's making the case with his singer. So he, what you got, Matt? He's actually picking somewhere where Spain can compete. I mean, if you're talking about just the recorded history of the last century, you got Teresa Berganza, you got Victoria de los Angeles, you've got Montserrat Caballé, Alfredo Krauss, Giacomo Aurigal, Pilar Lorengar, Jose 
Carreras, Placido Domingo. And then if you go back even further, you have like really legendary singers who acted as muses for really important composers, like Isabel Colbran, who was Rossini's wife, and he wrote many, many of his operas specifically for her voice. Or like Maria Malibran, who was a member of the Garcia family. I mean, the Spanish history of singing is pretty strong. And it, Sorry, go ahead, man. And, and tough to beat, I gotta say. Yes, this one is going to go down to a penalty shootout with the Russians winning. Yeah. Just, oh. ba- just barely. When you're looking at who's coming out of Russia today, who's still alive that's singing, and that's singing at that big level, it, they are going to be Russians. So I'm going to make the call for Russia. Moving on to the other part of that corner of the bracket, it's uh, Matt's team of Denmark. Can work out. <laughs> I know, against Toby and Croatia. All right. So, so uh, oh, I don't know where okay, to start. So, no, no, I, I'll start. <laughs> Croatia also lacks a little bit in history. <laughs> However, they do have the great, and I do believe that that's accurate, uh, soprano Zinka Milinov, uh, who had a major career centered around the Metropolitan Opera in New York City. Um, I mean, it was a career that spanned several decades, and she was known as one of the top Verdian Sopranos in the entire world. So I'm, that is my Croatian hope. Anything from the Danes from that? I mean, she was probably pretty expensive. And if you're going to talk about expensive, Copenhagen has the world's most expensive opera house, which cost nearly uh, half a billion dollars for them to build. <laughs> uh, it, it was, re- it was, it's a modern, they, they replaced their, the old one that was in the, that that's in the city. And it, Read the Wikipedia article about it because it's pretty incredible. But that that num- that price tag alone is is staggering. It's an excellent point. Money talks in sports. Denmark beating Croatia to go on to the next round. As we go down into the bracket, now this is going to I think be interesting. Weston with Sweden against Switzerland and Tobias Weston. Make your case. All right. Well, Sweden has a certain advantage in terms of its opera singers. If you look up, like, Swedish opera singers just Googling it, you see some real heavy hitters. We got Birgit Nielsen, Jussi Bjorling, Jenny Lind, Nikolai Geta, Elisabeth Sunderström, Anna-Sophie von Otter, Nina Stemma. The list goes on and on. Sweden has got it in the bag in terms of singers. Absolutely. I hear your singers from Sweden, and I present to you the argument that they would not be anything were it not for the opera houses that they <laughs> occupy. <laughs> and so, in Switzerland, they have some of the most beautiful opera houses, truly, in the entire world, um, both with the Zurich Opera House, uh, Lausanne Opera, uh, the Teatro de Rosimont. There's so many beautiful opera houses all over Switzerland. And also, you want to talk about money talking. George, where do all these, where do all these rich opera singers store their money? Offshore accounts or in Switzerland? (laughs) This is, again, one that's going to go to penalty kicks. But the point about the opera houses, this is a German-speaking Europe. I understand the point about all those great singers coming out of Sweden. Switzerland. We have an upset? Ooh, startling upset. That's an upset. That's an upset. Definitely. I beat Nikolai Geta. You did. You did, man. How often do you get to say that, right? Never. (laughs) All right. This this looks lopsided on paper. It might get interesting. Uh, Matt with Colombia and Weston with England. We're going to start with the underdog here and the Colombians. Colombia is not one of the hot spots for opera in (laughs) Latin America. Pablo Escobar. They they are hot spots of other things. 
But they, you know, they do have. There is an <laughs> opera house in, in Colombia that's the Teatro Cristobal Colon, uh, which was modeled after the Palais Garnier and is only in Paris and is about half the size. But this year they're putting on Der Rosenkavalier, which is a humongous undertaking. How do you say wow. that in Colombian? Uh, El Caballero de la Rosa. It, it took me a second to recognize what they were talking about on the website. I have to say. All right, so Weston, if we're just going to compare apples to apples, then we're going to compare English yeah. opera houses. I think it's not quite fair because England's got a bunch hanging around. The Royal Opera House is, of course, the the big kid on the block. You know, they they do big, large scale operas, uh, and there's there's a bunch of others hanging around. But I think the most interesting thing in uh, in England in terms of opera is probably going to be the Glyndebourne Festival, uh, which of course was founded in 1934 and it's one of the most famous opera festivals in Europe. Yeah, England hands down. No I upset. I think you might need to recuse here. yourself, George. <laughs> 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 Moving on then. Uh, Matt with Belgium. Wait, did you pick a winner? I did, England. Oh, Sorry. I didn't even hear it. That was... That was you didn't hear me answer. say that? Uh, <laughs> he definitely wasn't said really England. listening. And uh, Tobias... I was so upset still by the Croatia <laughs> you, loss. You were. You were. You're smarting from that. Maybe, maybe you and Japan can go a little further. Probably not. Japan against Belgium in opera contest uh, I'll, I'll continue because belgium for a small country has three major opera houses there's the vlamza opera the flemish national opera uh which recently saw christoph waltz's directorial debut in another production of el caballero de la rosa uh <laughs> and the, and of course their their most important house probably would be teatro la monet uh and they they are consistently putting on really top shelf high quality work for uh, a country that probably a lot of americans and the bias. So, uh, Japan, unfortunately, uh, opera being a Western art uh, phenomenon, is relatively new to the opera scene in that they've only been producing operas uh, since the 1900s. But what they have contributed are great singers. Uh, specifically, one that I've always enjoyed uh, is Taro Ishikara, a tenor who for years sang at the Met. So, I'm going to say the Japanese singers. But then I kind of defeat myself with the whole opera house thing. It, it is a little bit. Yeah, I, it's hard to deny those big opera houses, those important opera houses in I Belgium. I failed you, Japan. You, you oh, did so fail sad. Japan, which is sad because Japan went farther than expected, I would say, in the actual World Cup, as did Belgium. Belgium is going to take this. That uh, brings us to, oh, this will be an interesting one. All right, so Tobias, no rest for the wicked, Brazil... Mm. versus Weston Williams's Mexico team. So for Brazil, I actually am going to go with the same thing that I nominated Switzerland for. Brazil has gorgeous, and I do mean stunning, women. Opera, <laughs> whoa, opera whoa, houses. George. Olympics. No, I, I mean some of the most beautiful opera houses I think in the world are in Brazil, uh, in Sao Paulo, in Rio de Janeiro, and then they have an Amazon theater. Has anybody ever heard of this? Because I hadn't before today. No. Okay. Well, anyway, the rubber industry in Central uh, in the jungle was booming, and they they just have these stunning opera houses that were built with this uh, when the economy was good. However, Brazil doesn't even really put on operas anymore in these opera houses. So they're big, uh. gorgeous opera houses that could otherwise be occupied but aren't currently occupied by opera companies. Interesting. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm going to hit you with uh, with sort of a counterpoint from Mexico. Uh, Mexico is uh, sort of one of those Opry hotspots hot spots south of the uh, United States. As a matter of fact, they got into opera really early. Partenope uh, by Manuel de Zumaya 
could be pronouncing that wrong. Apologies to anyone who speaks Spanish. Um, it's the first known full opera to have been produced in Americas in the Americas. Uh, in that's in 1711, and it's the first written by an American-born composer. Um, and they have sort of a strong tradition of really early opera that is not really matched anywhere else in the Americas. I think, especially if you listen to comparable music from the United States, it's nowhere near up to par for at least a couple centuries. Yeah, again, for me, this is really close, but to tip the balance is going to be the singers that I know that have come out of Mexico just in my own career. I think that's probably going to tip the balance for me. So Mexico moves on. Brazil, soccer giants, opera giant, not so much. Not so much. Mm. The last of the round of 16, Weston Williams and France against <laughs> Matt Cummings' Argentina. If you're just joining us, it's Opera Box Score WNUR 89.3 FM. We're working our way through the World Cup bracket in terms of opera power. France against Argentina. Matt, make your case. So Argentina is another one of those hotspots in in Latin America where they have a, they have one really famous opera house in Buenos Aires, which is the, the Teatro Colón. And it saw not only many of the most important singers from the 20th century, basically all of them sang at the Teatro Colón, but also it saw a bunch of premieres of new Argentinian operas by composers like Osvaldo Goliov, Alberto Ginastera, Astor Piazzolla, and some. And these are names that uh, have made their way into the standard repertoire uh, that is notoriously biased against people from that area of the world. Mm. Uh, making a pretty good case there, Matt. Actually, Weston, for France, what do you got to say? Well, uh, France, of course, has been around uh, a, a while compared to a lot of the ones on this list. So they have some real heavy heavy hitters in terms of opera houses. You've got things like the Bastille, uh, the uh, I Am Provence Festival. Um, and then, of course, the uh, sort of little cherry on top is the Palais Garnier in Paris, uh, and that is the opera for the Phantom of the Opera, making it probably the most famous opera house in popular culture, therefore a big heavy hitter on our list today. Yeah, Teatro Colón in Argentina is kind of their star player, but I think France wins this one purely based off of the false. They just, they did, they just outnumbered, definitely. So then we move on to the quarterfinals, I guess they would be. Uh, Weston and the Russians against Matt and the Danes. So we are we all contributing here, Nick? Uh, yeah, we, we can duking it out. We can all we can all be part of the conversation, but I'm I'm ultimately going to be the the referee. Well, I think Russia, that, Denmark, take it away. Okay, boys. starting off with Russia. Russia, once again, we've got a lot of stuff going for us. I'm going to talk a little bit about the the uh, the opera companies in Russia. You have several world ca- world class opera companies, including uh, the Marinsky and the Bolshoi. Um, and uh, and as I said before, we have lots and lots of performances going on in the 1718 season. It had the second most opera performances in the world after Germany and Moscow had the most performances of opera than any other city in the world. Dang. Dang. Yeah. Yeah. I actually Power. like all of that. Uh, and I'll say, Den- Denmark maybe won't, doesn't have as many of the uh, 
historical composers as some of the other countries on this list, but they do have composers who are currently working. Uh, and one of them who, who really stood out to me is Paul Rudis, who wrote the opera of The Handmaid's Tale. Yes. Uh, which is an opera that, honestly, I think that more companies should be doing, if only for the synergy and marketing. It's being done at Boston Lyric Opera this coming season, which is was awesome to see that on their uh, materials. But uh, ultimately, yeah, Russia, I, for me, just too too heavy here, too deep. Big too, hitter. Big, big hitter, hitter, man. That's what you get. Uh no, no big, fan. no big, no big fan. That's... I'm typing it into the bracket with a heavy. Yeah, heavy you, you better feel nose. dirty about that, George. I, I do feel a little dirty about that. Spain no. could have been a contender. No, no, not even close. Okay, so here we go. So Switzerland versus England. Still gloating over our upset over the Swedes. <laughs> I'm not really sure what else Switzerland has contributed to the <laughs> operatic world other than obviously great singers and they have a, they do have a thriving operatic economy, you know, yeah. like you mentioned what happens in Russia, but yeah. truly Switzerland has avoided um there was a brief time, you know, uh, economically where the state decided to cut funding just a bit, but there was such an outcry. I mean, I don't know. They're thr- I, I don't really know what else to say about Switzerland, George. I failed you here. There's not. A, it's weird because they kind of there aren't great Swiss composers. There aren't great Swiss singers of the you know like not on the same level. Indi- as yeah, some they of these. are individuals, but not as a as a whole. Well, yeah, I, plus the Swiss are just sort of weird. I don't know if that that's not. I mean, fair they're for not as weird say. as the Belgians, but they're pretty <laughs> weird. We're we're Midwesterners. We're kind of weird. Listen, here's what here's what here's what I, here's where England wins for me is that as you start to look at the gathering 21st century repertoire, so much of it is being written in English. Yes, a lot of those composers are American, but a lot of those composers are British, and I, that really counts for something in my book is to be seeing all these British composers stepping up and really having pieces performed in England, in Europe, and around the world. I'm giving England the nod here. If any of our listeners can uh, educate me more on Swiss operatic history, I'm happy. Oh, yeah. Hit us up on Twitter. Absolutely. At Opera Box Scores, the Twitter handle. Moving over to the uh, third quarterfinal, Mexico and Belgium. Ooh. Who saw this matchup coming? (laughs) Tacos versus waffles. Yeah, we, mm. Or and fries, you know they would. That, that's what they say. In I think when I was in Belgium, that was the first time somebody gave me mayo for a fry, and I was like, "What?" And was, it was delicious. Uh, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "You guys got it figured out." Mayonnaise. So the thing about uh, francophone singers is that if you were to make a list of the really truly great singers who speak French as their native language, it's a shorter list than you'd expect, and it's a much shorter list than when you compare it to. Uh, Germans or Italians, but two of the singers who really would make anyone's list are Josia Van Damme and Rita Gore, both of whom were mm-hmm. born and raised in, well, uh, definitely born, maybe raised, in Belgium. Uh, they, they are two singers who really sang everything, especially Jose Van Damme, who is one of the go-to bases for decades and might even still be singing. <laughs> if he's he is alive. eternal. Can anybody add to the conversation about Mexico, oh, okay. or was that I, just a lucky break I, I, against I got Brazil? This. I got this, George. Here we go. Here we go. I mean, we could talk about some important Mexican singers like Viazon, Raymond Vargas, people like that. But I got three words for you: Placido freaking Domingo. 
He is one-third of, th- of the three tenors. He's a conductor. He's a singer. He is world-famous even outside the operatic sphere through his uh, 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 you know, crossover stuff. He is a huge name, a, a generational huge singer and somebody who has also tried to ensure that it is that it's safe for the next generation. Absolutely. Dude, dude he plays for Spain. He doesn't play I for I got to say, I think that this is a Sidney Crosby situation where, yeah, where yeah. Madrid is going to claim yes. Placido to me. <laughs> so you got I, kneecapped. Yeah, I understand uh, your point, but yeah. but def- you can't play for two teams. Domingo, for me, is definitely a Spanish player. <gasps> Disqualified. Player. Disqualified. So, well, we still got Viazon. He's yeah, got the eyebrows. I'm I like that you said a Sidney Crosby. I, you know, we want a hockey reference. You know, that. I'm from Pittsburgh, and if there's one a thing Pittsburgh. I know about... Pittsburgh, it's that we like sports, and I know a couple names. Belgium takes it right before the wow! break. We're gonna get you your. Oh, we're gonna man. get you your fourth semifinalist. Then we're gonna step aside and wrap this up. Uh, it's France and Portugal for the last spot in the semifinals. Can oh, anyone man. make a case for Portugal being a stronger? operatic country here's my case over france (laughs) in some of the most important uh, historical french operas like uh, don sebastian by donizetti or uh, vasco da gama from meyerbeer we got portugal playing the leading role in uh in historical characters All right, taking the historical route. I, I like your thinking there. I'm going to use everything know, in my man. toolkit, George. <laughs> you're, you're throwing, this is like what, was your, <laughs> what was your case for France in the first round? Uh, it was Opera House. It was Opera House. Yeah, Opera House. Excellent. Okay. Okay. What about, we got, are we going to talk about French composers? Oh, Take yeah. it away, dude. I mean, Massonet, Poulenc, I, the Berlioz, it just goes on and on. It's, Charpentier, it's, Rameau, Chabrier. Um, uh, everyone. Say, I don't, yeah, it's... I, this is it's over. Too, it's too. It's too deep. Yeah, yeah they had off. Yeah, those royal, those Jacques those off. bourbon royals <laughs> loved their loved their music. All right, too much. well, we got four semifinalists. After the break, we will uh, wrap this up and we'll let you know who's going to go all the way. You do not want to miss that. Keep it locked. WNUR eighty nine point three FM Opera Box Score. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. What do you think Oliver would think of this gig? What do I think Oliver would think of this gig? (laughs) 
He would he, be so upset. Also, would, there would be so I, many eye rolls going on. I think he would accuse me of taking a fall for like Uruguay <laughs> when like not defending them to the fullest. And you know what? He's probably right. <laughs> it's true. Oliver's out of town this week. George Cedarquist here with Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams on Upper Box Score. We took the World Cup Final 16 bracket and we looked at those countries and said, who would beat who in terms of opera? We're down to our semifinalists, Russia against England and France versus Belgium. Can I just say this is bizarre in that three of the actual semifinalists in the World Cup are in our bracket? (laughs) This is very predictive. And I love that the one that isn't is Russia. Right, and and Russia would be here if they hadn't lost in a penalty shootout to Croatia. I'm just saying. Penalty shootouts are kind of weird. They're the if worst. Toby had known more about Croatian opera. This no, never would have happened. You, there's, there's there's, I don't think there's much more to know. <laughs> so, Goodbye to all of our Croatian <laughs> listeners. So here we go. First semifinal, Russia against England. How are we going to decide a winner in this clash of the titans? I like this round, actually. Because there's, I think the contributions to opera vastly different like what you mm-hmm. said george yeah. it's so historically significant in russia and though it is currently obviously thriving there england is what we listen to now mm-hmm. english mm. music is what we listen to now and that's what is driving younger audiences to go listen to so i but, but at the I same like time at the same time you've got in in russia you've got composers mazorsky borden rimsky korsakov yeah. tchaikovsky and what's coffee of shostakovich alfred and, dis- and distinct beautiful sounds that we know are russian what Absolutely. i think is really funny about this round is that it's two uh, countries whose musical history kind of run parallel where most of the music was imported and then you have a group of composers just saying like no we're going to throw that out and we're going to make our own Music with the Mighty Five in Russian, or in Britain, and people like Britain and Michael Tippett in mm-hmm. England, uh, or an Elgar and Vaughn Williams, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, where I mean, granted, I I do agree that England does have more of a spread in the West because by virtue of of being an English and having a lot of living composers, but uh, Russia also has a lot of living composers as well, and I would argue that Russia's sort of uh, in terms of music theory, its tonal basis is much more influential in terms of what we hear outside than, than anything that sounds like Benjamin Britten. Uh, do you know what I mean? I think that basically every opera composer who is writing today is influenced by Benjamin Britten, whether they admit it or not. The way he dealt but with text, the way he dealt with chromaticism and uh, very theoretically based dissonance. But I would argue that uh, that what most people go to listen to is the Shostakovich-style dissonance, the more visceral sort of um, rhythmic uh, hits, uh, very much more uh, in terms of revolving around a mode, but with that, that clashing dissonance at the moment. I don't think that Britain is as accessible as even uh, as as some of the Russian composers would the be. The War Requiem so, is one of the best-selling album, classical albums of all time. But, it's but at the end of the World day, if you're going to go sit in an opera house, do you want to hear a Russian opera? And that, in the grand scale that that is, or do you want to hear the stark sounds of Benjamin Britten? I mean, like. I'm going Russia. On George, this I'm one. doing my best to fight for your Englishman. I'm, I'm, George, I'm trying to chip in too. I mean, look, outside of St. Petersburg and Moscow, give me another opera house. You know, compared to all those venues in London, all the small venues in London, uh, the venues in Birmingham, Manchester, uh, Opera North, Glyndebourne. It. This is so. This is so close for me, and I'm. 
it's really tough to make a call. I, I cannot. Especially with the England bias. I, I understand. I understand <laughs> and look, if we weren't English speakers, honestly, I don't think we would give England as much credit for its impact on opera. But, you know, han from Handel on up and oratorio it's going to go to england for okay, me into the final okay, okay moving over then other side semi-finalists belgium and france this is so difficult you might think that this you might think that belgium is spent when i talked about their houses i talked about their singers there's another person who started as a singer but has become a musical institution recently who comes from Belgium, and that's Rene Jacobs, oh. who, as a conductor, as a music historian, has really revitalized, uh, in, in a lot of ways, the way that people look at and make recordings of Baroque and classical era music. Uh, he, he's, a, he's controversial, he is iconoclastic, and his, his recordings of Mozart operas are exciting. Even if you know everything about these operas and have been listening to recordings of them for years, his are different and they're new and they're fresh. And what else is opera about? Okay, mm. and I'm going to pull out a, a new trick from France too, which Ooh. for me is, is the directors. Directors like Patrice Charot, Pierre Audi, Luc Bondy, these are titans of directing. They're running opera festivals. They're directing productions all over the world. These are very, very important uh, men. And the people I mentioned are all men. I know there's female French directors as well. Uh, Marianne, I cannot remember her last name. Um, that tips the balance for me. I'm putting France into the final. Oh, that's the director bias. And it, it no, is. No, Belgium didn't really have anything <laughs> I think, else. I so think it I was think the that's right fair. choice. <laughs> but they did. They had a good run. Hey so, guys, where's Italy? <laughs> where's the USA? Where's Germany? Ugh. Oh man, what, what a great honestly World Cup though. It's been. Where would USA have have done in our competition here? I think they would have done pretty well. They would have gotten stopped if, stomped if Germany was still it in. It depends the, on the draw a little yeah, bit. You know, yeah. would they have been in the semifinals? Probably not. But they probably could have stood up to Croatia. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a really good point, though. I mean, again, we're basing this on the actual World Cup, right? Italy did not qualify for the football World Cup. Germany crashed out before making it to the round of 16. These are two... This would be a very different World Cup for opera, for soccer, if those countries were in. For opera and for soccer. In that <laughs> order. <laughs> for opera and for soccer. Here we go. France oh. versus England oh, for all is, the marbles. That is an ancient ba, ba, blood feud ba, ba, right there. It really is. It really is. I think, I think we've just got it. We've got to go very quickly by category here. Rameau, Berlioz, Gounod, Bizet, Massenet, Debussy, Ravel, Poulenc. Dude. Purcell, Benjamin Britten, Thomas Adiz, George Benjamin, Ethel Smith, and good old Gilbert and Sullivan. Exactly. And good old Gilbert and Sullivan. But we didn't even get to people. We didn't even get to Offenbach or right. Uh, oh, we didn't even talk about Handel. Oh, okay. He, yeah, he's German. Well, he he he. he no, he's English. He, he, yeah, he he moved here. Can't play for both teams. You wouldn't know it from the, his text setting. In terms of the opera houses, it's it's like a virtual tie. There's there's yeah, probably more in in. France, I guess, but it's like super, super close. I really feel like listeners will be upset if France doesn't win. This. Yeah, I gotta say, I think that France completely revolutionized <laughs> Italian opera to make it more friendly to what they wanted to see, which was language and dance. Beautiful and that point. Oh, yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's a beautiful point. France is our victor. <gasps> Viva la France. <laughs> is that our prediction for the winner of the World Cup that as is, well? That has to be All our right, prediction yeah, here we go. for the winner. Of you the heard winner. it here first. Oh, Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. 
I'm still smarting from that French victory in the Opera World Cup. I'll tell you, my son was just irate that Russia didn't win the World Cup for soccer as well as the Opera World Cup as well. But hey, the boys have spoken. We've got another four years until we can do that segment again. Hey, that's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. My colleagues are Tobias Wright. Matt Cummings and Weston Williams. I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you labor away at whatever it is that you do, wherever you do it. We are back on Monday, September 10th at 9 p.m. Central when we go inside the huddle with tenor and visual artist Luther Lewis, plus more opera news and hot takes. Please join us. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.